From PRN, this is Alana Castro-Gilliard. On today's episode, Dr. Casey, a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon, discusses tubal ligations, various ethical and financial considerations, and briefly speaks on pelvic pain. I'm Jim Casey. I am right now an assistant professor in OBGYN at the Virginia Tech School of Medicine and also through Carilion Clinic, um, which is the affiliated community program. I am also the division director of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at the same institution. And I've been at my current position for four years. And so I have subspecialty training in both chronic pain and minimally invasive surgery. And uh, obviously, like many others, uh, a deep interest in women's health. I am so excited to have you on to talk with us today. So our topic is tubal ligations or tube tying as the common term for it. So my very first question for you is what does it mean to get your tubes tied? Yeah, so it's it's both correct that lots of times we do tie tubes, at, literally, and most often that's performed at the time of C-sections. And there are a few other ways to do it as well. So the most common would be Sometimes you can do the same thing, but you actually clip the tubes with these little silicone-coated titanium clips, or they used to put these little, what they called, silastic bands over them, which are functionally rubber bands. And both of those would act the same. They would actually occlude off the tube, and then that intervening tubal segment would die off. And then you just made a roadblock there in the tube, but the tube stays in place. And then sometimes along those lines, they would burn a segment of the tube, and this is done generally laparoscopically. Um, through those tiny little five millimeter incisions. And then as the last one, which is becoming more common, we'll actually remove the tube itself. So do a bilateral salpingectomy to completely take out the tube at the time. Uh, and there used to be another one um, that was called Esher and a few others were actually going through the uterus itself and occlude the tubes that way, though due to some um, complications that have subsequently arised with that technique, it's no longer on the market. So that actually leads to my next question of after these procedures, what is the general success rate or complication rate with them? Fortunately, overall, all of them are pretty darn effective, uh, generally 99% or greater. And whenever we kind of use those percentages, uh, sometimes it's also helpful to know, you know, 99% isn't kind of like a traditional percentage that we would think of maybe flipping a coin. It's actually so two people having a heterosexual couple having regular intercourse for an entire year, what's the percentage chance using this form that they're going to get pregnant? Um, and lifetime for tubal ligation is just north of 99%, or especially in salpingectomy, I've, I've never heard of a pregnancy in that case occurring. So you talked about the different methods. Is there an ability to re reverse any of those methods uh, and for someone to become pregnant on purpose later? Yeah, there are. And there are a couple of different ways you could approach it. So probably the most important thing is in, in most cases, if you think at some point in the future, you would want your tubes reversed, tubal ligation in any form is probably not a great idea um, because this should be considered a permanent sterilization when it's performed. There are just so many other good forms of birth control out there too, both hormonal and non-hormonal. Um, right, like the Paragard IUD, if it works well for you, lasts for at least 10 years and doesn't have any hormones in it. But again, everyone's different. So fortunately, we have a lot of different options. Um, but if you wanted to have it reversed for any reason, either new partner or wanted, you know, another pregnancy in the future with same partner, then the two ways to do it are either to directly reverse it, in which case that's purely 
contingent on the amount of tube you have left. So if you have enough tube, you can put the two ends together through a surgery. Um, unfortunately, it's generally not covered by insurance, so it's out of pocket and it gets pretty expensive, usually about five to $10,000. And then the other way that you can generally uh, you know, reverse tubes is actually to bypass the system altogether through IVF or similar. And that generally is a little more expensive, but it kind of, it removes a few of the obstacles of a tube reversal because there can be scarring in that tube reversal, even though generally it's pretty successful. And so IVF, right, removes the eggs directly from the ovaries after stimulation, fertilizes, and then reimplants the embryo. So some of the other issues that could cause infertility in a couple, even if their tubes work, you're able to get past those. So it has higher success rate, but again, more cost even than a tubal reversal. That's really interesting. I never would have thought about IVF after having a salpingectomy or any sort of procedure like this. Yeah. And it's, and, and that's usually, I'd say about half the time, that's the way that uh, couples end up going um, or anyone looking to become pregnant is they say, okay, well, it's five to 10, so maybe it's $8,000 to have your tubes reversed in that whole process. And then you still have to get pregnant or for some, if the financial means are there or insurance will cover it because sometimes it's so variable, they'll actually, they'll cover IVF, even though they don't cover the reversal. Well, IVF is actually a cheaper option if you wanted a pregnancy, which is very, it gets very interesting. It's uh, sometimes it's actually cheaper or easier to have IVF afterwards. I won't say easier, but um, more direct than, uh, than having your tubes reversed and reanastomosed. Have you had a lot of couples come to you after having these procedures saying, I do want to get pregnant? Hopefully. So yes. Um, I say overall more than you would think afterwards. Although, you know, kind of with the caveat of for my own patients, I've, since I've only been practicing for four years in the area, you know, you don't really see kind of that follow-up. And so you, you don't know, well, how is my counseling? Obviously you hope pretty darn good and selection process uh, ahead of time. But I've definitely seen people um, who and couples who do want to get pregnant afterwards. And there's definitely a, a correlation both, you know, by age for two reasons. One, because they have longer fertility windows just in general, right? Even if someone who had their tubes tied at 40 said, I want to get pregnant again. Well, at 50, your options are a little different than they would be if you had it at 25 and now you're 35, just, you know, kind of by the, there's always a biological element, no matter what the plan is. Um, and then also because while we counsel everyone thoroughly, you know, objectively, the regret rate is higher, the younger you are when you have your tubes tied, which has kind of been shown time and again, statistically, it's just more likely that if you've had your tubes tied younger, you're going to want that reversed and you're probably still going to be at an age where that's an option. Okay. So let's say that you have a patient, you've counseled them now, they've gone through their procedure. Do they generally need to stay overnight after the procedure? What is the recovery process like the days or weeks to come after? So fortunately, overall, pretty quick. Um, definitely, definitely more involved than, than kind of the, the male equivalent of having a vasectomy, but because it is, it's an abdominal procedure. So I'll say kind of the two pads. If you have it done at the time of a C-section, probably nothing added on to the recovery because the C-section itself is definitely the majority of the recovery. The tubal probably adds five to 10 minutes total onto the case. Nothing really different there. Um, but if you're having it as its own procedure, you're going to either burn, tie, you know, clip, remove tubes. 
So that's going to be a laparoscopic procedure takes, you know, somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour for the whole thing, you know, getting you comfortable, the surgery, and then the recovery, you go home the same day each time, definitely, unless like any other surgery, there were a complication though, fortunately that's very low. Um, and then recovery, I tell everyone take at least three days off afterwards, just kind of take it easy. It's not that you can't go back to work per se, but you're going to be sore and work is tiring already. So add recovery onto that and maybe just take a few days for yourself. And then if you feel up to it, you can go back, you know, and then again, maybe a couple days is different for everyone, depending on how physical your job is. That makes sense. (laughs) Are there reasons outside of not wanting to get pregnant or not wanting to have children that someone would have this procedure? So there, yeah, there are always a couple caveats. Um, It's a good point. And probably the biggest one would be at the time of a risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy. So in individuals who have family genetic traits, either whether it's right, BRCA1, 2, or similar, actually performing removal of the tubes and ovaries at the same time at the completion of childbearing would be recommended. And then the other time that you would do it other than the risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy would be along the lines of sterilization in people who say, I want to get pregnant, but because of this medical condition, I literally should not be pregnant. And then, and that's obviously a independent life decision, but for some people, right. There's like, you know, I have a, a very high risk of morbidity or mortality with a pregnancy, right. I have known I'm a heart, um, transplant recipient, you know, some other conditions that fortunately people are alive today that they wouldn't have been 20, 30 years ago. You know, they have elected to have their tubes tied, even though they want to get pregnant. So now your patient has gone through, has recovered, um, and they're talking to their insurance company now. Is this a, a procedure that insurance companies usually cover? You kind of started to touch on that. Yeah, typically they will, uh, which is nice. It is a, so the largest single expense for insurance for reproductive age women is pregnancy right? That is the biggest expense. So from a financial standpoint, it makes complete financial sense for every insurance to cover, well, honestly, any form of contraception that anyone would want, whether it's a tubal ligation or anything else, hormonal or non-hormonal. Every once in a while, we run into some issues with some insurances where they're very limited, but um, Fortunately, it's pretty rare. And I would say those are probably the insurances that are even more on the edge of what we call catastrophic or some of the insurances that we're trying to just in general make go away because they're almost insurance in name only, even though they don't cover or provide any primary services. So fortunately, overall, almost all insurances will cover it to some degree. Um, Lots of them will cover it completely because it does make financial sense. Um, But how much out of pocket is just so variable for each insurance company. Do you do a lot of counseling in terms of the finances with your patients, or is that something that you kind of have to say, talk to your insurance company and work it yeah. through? Yeah, so we can definitely direct them in the right area to give them the best answer, and that's what you try to do. And even if you knew, you know, there aren't that many insurance companies, but at the same time, there are so many different plans within there, and then it's just unique to each person, you know, whether they've met their deductible, do they have a certain percentage they have to pay above that deductible or is everything covered? Is this considered in the elective or the covered procedures? And it really does change 
based on their even what their company has negotiated with the insurance company, even if you only have three insurance companies. So I usually say, here's the CPT code, right? The code that I'm going to bill for this procedure. Check it out and see where you are right now. And if it works well, you know, we're here for you. We're here for you regardless. And if we need to put it off for a little bit, we, we can do that too. Does the same thing transfer over for uh, government specific uh, insurance companies like Medicare or Medicaid? I know that I, ha- I personally have a lot of patients that have more issues with that. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty rare with Medicare, you know, just because it's typically an older population. But there are there are younger Medicare people, right? They are in there for a couple of reasons. So Medicaid is definitely by far the biggest, especially because fortunately there's been such good coverage of pregnancy. So generally it is completely covered, but there are kickers to that one too. So it has to be at least 30 days from the time that you signed your forms and said, I would like my tubes tied and you have to fill out the form in clinic. And as well, there's a, there's a caveat to that, that it can be only after 72 hours if it's an emergency. So, you know, 34 weeks developed preeclampsia needs to deliver now. Well, if it's been 72 hours, that can be considered mature because we were surprised that we weren't expecting to deliver, even though everyone did their due diligence. Um, And then that lasts afterwards as well. So there's still time if someone had a vaginal delivery, right? The last thing you want to do is you would never counsel someone to have a C-section to have their tubes tied, you know, at the time. No, vaginal delivery, definitely. Uh, And then afterwards, you can still have a laparoscopic tubal ligation if you, you know, want to go that route or can't convince your partner to get a vasectomy. <laughs> I'm sure that happens all too frequently, unfortunately, that last part. <laughs> it, it does happen a lot. We, it's, it's, it's a half joke, but it's, it's because there's so much truth in it. And so every single time as well, when we say, okay, my partner's going to get a vasectomy, it's like, okay, well, no matter what, there's still a three-month time period after the vasectomy where you need to use birth control so what's our plan? Right. So counseling on them on that, that's an interesting thing that you might have to counsel someone on their partner's surgical history when it's not your procedure that you're doing. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're still there to cover them, even if, even if their partner has a vasectomy. Education is key always, always with patients. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And, and we've delivered lots of, lots and lots of babies of, I think I was going to go ahead and do blank. Cause I, it's still almost half of all pregnancies are unplanned and it doesn't mean they're not wanted, but they're unplanned. Yeah. Uh, happy surprises. My next question for you is kind of related to the last one. Are there specifically any procedures or treatments that you do that you find patients have a hard time uh, having insurance coverage for? Specifically around sterilization? Yeah, that or any other things that you do as a MIGS or um, pelvic pain specialist. Yeah, probably the some of the biggest ones. So one of the biggest catches to the sterilization is definitely in the incarcerated population. So they are not covered, right? So anything there in terms of sterilization. So because of some of the coverage issues there, and obviously a lot of uh, historical issues with abuse of sterilization, you cannot perform sterilization while someone is incarcerated, even if they sign the papers ahead of time, to my understanding currently. And so, but the good one is we do have other long-acting forms of 
reversible contraception, right? Between Nexplanon in the arm or any of the IUDs, whether progesterone or Paragard. So those generally are also covered. Now there are people in a gap as well where they have insurance, but their insurance just does not cover services like you're mentioning. So there's this big hole of even though it makes financial sense to cover these services, they don't because even some of the insurance is potentially, you know, and, and the patients fortunately can have Medicaid coverage if they become pregnant. Now you, you would hate to just fall back and say, Oh, I'm pregnant. I'm covered. That's, you know, we don't want people to get pregnant if they don't want to get pregnant, but we do run into some issues. You're right with, um, uh, with birth control. There's also, there are a couple forms on traditionally both the Walmart and Walgreens lists as well for one and three month supplies that are four and $10. So there are options out there for hormone, hormonal birth control right off the shelf, even if you're self pay, but they are definitely more limited. And then, you know, we obviously use our research resources through, um, the arch foundation and Ryan grants, and then also local health departments to really kind of fill that gap that insurance can't fill in the uninsured population. Yeah, I found out recently that anybody that's pregnant in the state of Virginia gets coverage. Uh, and I feel like not enough people know that because I've met so many patients that have been pregnant and haven't received care because they say they can't afford their visits in between, which it, there's a lot of things like transportation and um, getting time off from work that can also prevent care. Uh, but that was an interesting tidbit that I didn't know that Virginia provided for any pregnant patient. It is. It's, it's a nice service. And you're right. There's, there's still room. I mean, even so, even right now during, especially this year, it's unique having the pandemic, but even now mom at home with pick a number of kids, one child who's not in school, that child can't come with her to the visit. So all of a sudden, right off the bat, you have limitations of you have to provide childcare for your own child during the time of your prenatal visit, even though you're covered. And as you mentioned, transportation, like it really, it snowballs, even though it's like, oh, you're covered. You are, which is good, but not nearly to the extent that would functionally cover everything because of some of the restrictions, even within this past year. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that aspect either of not having, you can't bring them in with you uh, until I believe one of my classmates told me that they weren't able to take a patient who showed up with the, the child for a while until they figured some sort of solution out um, for the, the patient being the mother that was coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very common, apparently. Yes. That's right. Many people have more than one child. <laughs> That's right. It's, it, it is very common. It, it made it very difficult and everyone had to come up with interesting ideas. And honestly, at the end, it, so much of it falls on the parents. So you kind of started talking about this a little bit in terms of the history of forced sterilizations in the United States, Virginia in particular, um, and many other states have a history of forced sterilization against people that by the state were deemed to be unfit for reproduction. And that included people that were lower income, that were feeble-minded. I have air quotes around that. I know you can't see that listeners, but uh, that was what the state called it. And disabled groups as well, which included people with things like epilepsy. Um, not that any sort of disabled group is more or less uh, in need of this or that this should happen to them. 
but this happened all the way up until the 1980s in Virginia. Um, and so I've heard a lot that there are now these barriers because the state tried to address these inequalities that were happening. So how for you has this, these laws that have been enacted impacted your practice or restricted access to women who seek these kind of treatments that you do like tubal ligations or uh, tying your tubes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a lot of good points there. Uh, and, and actually one of our residents, uh, Dr. Wynn did a great grand rounds on this just recently about the, the state of, uh, maternal and prenatal care in the incarcerated population in Virginia. And, uh, out of that, and actually just some, some prior research as well. So first it's a really common thing, right? At any one time, about 4% of the incarcerated female population is pregnant and 90% of them will deliver while still in either jail or prison. So that's the, right, the overwhelming majority in one in 25 women who are in crisis. That's a, that's a lot. Um, so it's a very common problem as well, unfortunately. Uh, and you're right, historically, the limitations, even the 30-day consent and some other variations of that were put in place exactly for that reason was because you know we we have a very horrible history of eugenics here in Virginia. And right, we're the we're the home of Buck v. Bell. And that was back in the 20s, and that didn't stop people for, like you said, the next 50, 60 years. So men and women. And um, and because of that, in an effort to ultimately and more recently help women have their own control over the reproductive rights, it inadvertently placed limitations over their um, their freedoms in that sense, like you mentioned. So while we allow them to retain their fertility very appropriately, um, we also prevent them from exercising their right for sterilization because of the risk of abuse, which is definitely there. I mean, even California within the past decade is still actively fighting uh, for sterilization cases of thousands of women. Um, and this is not like 19... 2024, 27, you know, when Buck v. Bell was, this is 2013, you know, just recently. Um, but it is, it is a fine line and it is an issue. And I, I think we're dancing around a more correct answer, definitely more so than we have in the past, but we're not there. I mean, just the idea that the second someone is incarcerated, we lay it down and say, no, you, you know, that sterilization you were planning on having, even though you can still exercise some free rights, you know, and others have been curtailed, this one is being taken away from you. Um, and it's, it, it's really tough because you're right, you don't want to go down that slope of sterilizing people against their will. That's, I mean, that's a horrible side to be on. And, and probably the way we've navigated it is that because there are better long acting reversible contraceptives, that's really what's taken the place. Having Nexplanon and these IUDs um, has been the thing that has allowed us to gently tread in those waters where we know it's not perfect, but hopefully we're doing a better job than we were even 10 and 20 years ago when these were more limited. Yeah, I could certainly go on many long rants on the historical perspectives of forced sterilizations in the United States from uh, forced sterilizations in Puerto Rican women in the 1950s and 60s that they weren't told, they weren't given informed consent uh, as to what was happening. They just knew that they were getting what translates in Spanish to the surgery. 
Um, and they didn't know why they weren't getting pregnant for two, three years after, or why they got that surgery. Um, to in the 1990s, people that were in prison um, were told that they would get a reduced sentence if they agreed to certain forms of birth control after, um, which I think the specifically the prison point brings up the fact that anybody that's in prison can't really truly give informed consent, uh, especially when you have that kind of influence of being released earlier, potentially. Mm-hmm. And people's fertility is just such a personal topic. Um, but anyways, that's the medical ethics and history major in me. It's <laughs> good. Coming out. Um, so you, you kind of said this about where we put restrictions now on a lot of women and you talked about how um, there's a higher risk of not wanting or of regretting having this operation or this procedure later on. Um, and so because of that, a lot of providers won't perform this operation unless they know that this woman is married and the spouse is okay with it. Um, if the person has a certain number of kids or if they're certain over a certain age and the internet is just filled with these stories of 25 year old women going to seek um, a tubal, getting their tubes tied uh, and not being able to, because providers say that they won't do it. Um, how do you have conversations with women that fall into these categories or that don't fit these categories? Yeah, it's, and you hit on a lot of really good points there, um, which you're right. Fortunately, um, I'm hearing less and less, but I do even uh, very recently, the same one of uh, a partner coming in and saying, well, where do I need to sign for the sterilization? You you don't need to at all. We are more than happy and enthusiastic for your support because obviously that makes for just a general healthier partnership. And and we know that, right? Um, People who have are on the same uh, idea about sterilization are much more likely to not just stay together, but to not seek a reversal. Interestingly, if there's a bunch of discord in between them, uh, in between the two partners, then it is much more likely they will have a reversal or ask for one in the future. So it is good, right? You want concordance. You want a, you know, a strong relationship. Um, but you 100%, I never ask anyone's partner if they have one to, to sign. That's that's an antiquated notion, um, in my my opinion. Now, in terms of age, you know, as I think I'd mentioned before, that does play an objective role. It is not a reason that you cannot perform a sterilization, right? If you are an adult and you are not incarcerated <laughs> at this time, and you have, you know, you are able to make your own sound medical decisions, you are able to have a sterilization by definition. Um, but you also have to, like any other procedure consider the motives behind it and the repercussions and risks and benefits. And so in this case, the main one is there are objectively higher risks of regret in younger women. And we also always want people to make decisions when they are not under any sort of duress or stress. Um, And one of the reasons actually that I think is good about waiting 30 days about maturity of the tubal forms is also, you're also doing it at a time before there's hopefully as much stress in pregnancy and even doing it outside of pregnancy is a wonderful time because it's, you know, it's different, but take it to another stress in life where you say, 
you know, if you've ever run a long race, I, I like running marathons and longer races. And I remember in the last one I just ran a few weeks ago at the end of the race, I was just saying, I, I hate this. I'm never going to do this again. And this is like my 13th one or something. And of course the next day I signed up for another one. And it's, it's the same one because at the time, you know, it's like when you're going through a delivery, so many times people say, this is the, the hardest thing I've ever done by far in my entire life. There's no way I would do that. But then when you get a little breathing room in there, it's amazing how often people change their mind. And we recognize that. And so that's why, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing a, a tubal on someone who's 25, but doing it on the fly last minute, right after their delivery, when they haven't slept in two days is probably not the time to get informed consent, right? This should be a, a nice conversation, hopefully in an office, if you can, where you can really sit down and talk about all the risks and benefits. Um, so there's no complete number of kids plus age, although I have um, people have thrown that out in the past, you know, your age plus your number of kids needs to equal 30, something similar. There are all sorts of other ones that you can use, but people also have medical reasons. You know, I've performed a tubal ligation on someone who was 21 because they, they could not get pregnant. They were, there was a decent chance they were going to die. So they're always, you know, while it's not normal or typical to perform a tubal on someone who's 21, they had, they had a good reason and they thought about it and we performed them on. So someone who was 25 and said, you go through a conversation. How long have you thought about this? I've wanted a tubal since I was 18 years old. It's like, okay, consistently. And then, you know, you ask about relationship status and you can build a picture and get a pretty darn good idea. What's the chance of regret? You're never going to get a hundred percent on one side or the other. Um, because we also know just as the last one that, uh, I read a a great paper and heard a really good talk. Um, it was from a 2013 science article that confirmed that across all ages, we all know that significant change has happened in the past decade of our life, but we are all convinced that stability is going to happen in the next decade of our life. And this is true whether you are 18, 38, or 68. Everyone says the same thing. So we are horrible predictors of the future. We always think we're, things are going to be sunny, or if they're dreary, they're going to stay that way, and they never generally do. They always change. So the consistency in time is such an important thing that's such a good predictor of how people will do with it and, uh, and have a, a happy outcome, which is what we want. Is there a 30-day wait period between like when you have your first conversation? What, what does that 30 days mean? Yeah, so that one, uh, that one specifically is really just for the Medicaid in Virginia form. Uh, about the maturity of the forms to perform it or that 72 hours, right? With private insurance, there is no specific time. Uh, and that's why just sitting down and having the conversation is best. Uh, unfortunately, just the way that we actually go ahead and schedule surgery, it's generally not a quick turnaround. Um, so, or a as quick where you would have it the next day or the day after. Um, but it is, it's nice, you know, you build the picture and hopefully people are, feel well-informed at the end of it. Are there any questions that you ask of your younger patients that you wouldn't ask of your older patients or the other way around? Yeah, I think anyone who thinks that there's not a, a bias in there by age is, is kidding themselves. There always is. And, and I do. I, I, I will fully admit that I definitely ask slightly different questions or not maybe different, but maybe a few more questions of someone who wants a tubal ligation at 25 than does at 40. That's true. Um, and also maybe not necessarily based on number of kids, but based on 
you know, relationship status and knowing where they are just because of that same thing of we, we slightly, we don't want to be paternalistic at all, but we also know objectively that people delude themselves about what they think the future is going to hold for them. Um, so like I said, I think it's more of, you know, time, how long have you thought about this? You know, what, what are your plans? What do you think? You know, I, I probably don't go so far as to say, so your current partner, what if you two break up? What are you going to do with that next partner? Right. We're not going that far. Uh, because that's a little, it's a, it's, a, it's a bridge too far, maybe, but, but understanding, um, kind of where they are in their relationship status or some, for some people, right. They're not in one. And I, we definitely perform tubals in that situation too. It's just knowing that it's not reactionary and that it's well thought out. So questions are always along those lines to make sure that, and also obviously that they're objectively a, a fine surgical candidate. I'm sure it requires a lot of uh, emotional intelligence on your end to be able to read people and form that picture and um, connect with people and sound genuine when asking those questions instead of maybe a little bit invasive or intrusive. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's kind of the, the nice thing about working in uh, a lot in chronic pelvic pain is you get to delicately pick your words on a lot of very sensitive topics. I'm sure it takes a long time to refine that. Uh, and I'm sure over time you just keep on refining more and more. So <laughs> every day you work on it every day. <laughs> so you started to talk about paternalism. Uh, there's this notion that we've started moving from a paternalistic relationship in medicine, a good notion uh, to a partnership in medicine. Can you talk a little bit to what it means to have patient autonomy and choosing to want to have an operation like this versus the provider comfort for doing a procedure and someone that might later regret this procedure? Yeah, it's, you're right. They, they just like you're I think, talking about, or I'm interpreting, they, they go, they're very closely related in that the line between you always want a combination of shared decision-making, but at the same time, you're not, you're coming from two different places and that's not a bad thing, but you have to recognize that is that the patient is coming from the experience that that person knows themselves better than you know them, right? So they know their goals better that they want, but they are not medical experts. And so they need your guidance and support to be able to better provide evidence and reasons for one choice or the other. So and that's where I think it gets a little fuzzy sometimes in that shared decision-making is that it is, it needs to be absolutely shared decision-making, but it's your goal as the provider to provide the good choices and help provide insight into potentially bad choices. So you can't take a completely hand. I've seen a few times where people really do. It's like, here are your seven choices. And he's like, well, which one do you think? He's like, I don't know. You, you can pick between these seven. It's like, well, that might be a little bit too hands off, right? You might need some, some risks and benefits thrown in there. Uh, and, and that's where the art of medicine really comes in, is making sure that they feel comfortable about their decisions, but they're also getting evidence-based medicine. EBM, that's why we have those weekly meetings and <laughs> yep. got to stay up to date and yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's right. And it's not just for, you know, it's, it's for good mental and physical outcomes, both so that people feel good about the decisions that they made. 
Okay. So my last question for you is a little bit of a trail off from what we've been talking about and it's shifting over from your, uh, the tubal part to this pelvic pain specialty that you're also trained in. How exactly does someone who's in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery get trained to address pelvic pain? I love that because I could go on for hours about that. <laughs> and I also really love it. So I really could. <laughs> um, I'd say the biggest ones are that a lot of the fellowship programs that are out there take a different aspect of that minimally invasive surgery approach. And some of them are very, very surgically oriented. And some are also incorporate a lot of pelvic pain that's obviously also non-surgically oriented. And so the program that I trained at in Vanderbilt was a, a great amalgamation of both. And so they had lots of surgical experience, but also just as many patients that were non-surgical and really focused on all the facets of pain, probably between the neck and the knee, and sometimes actually above and below, um, but, but just everywhere in there, all types of pain. And so it's like anything else, you see it enough and you finally start to catch on to the patterns that allow you to, you know, uh, open up the, the mystery that is pelvic pain where everyone else loves to say, it's one of those things I don't know. Is this a formal training that is in most MIGs? I know that you said some programs are more surgical, but do you have specific uh, lectures that are on pain or it's just that you see them so often that you get used to them? Is that what I want to make sure I'm understanding? No, you're right. It's both. So it's uh, definitely my program was a strong pelvic pain program. There was a, a great history that derives largely out of uh, pelvic pain programs in a few institutions. And the one that mine came out of was UNC um, with John Stagey. And Dr. Stagey then kind of trickled down and a lot of his graduates uh, and fellows then went on to start a lot of the big pelvic pain institutions across the United States down in Florida, University of Michigan, Cedars, Vanderbilt, uh, just all over the United States. So it, it's kind of stemmed from that. And so a lot of those fellowship programs are very pelvic pain oriented. And then, yes, we have tons of lectures on all of this all the time. I give grand rounds to, um, to actually pain management, to the emergency department, to family medicine. We've given to, and then, you know, at national and international meetings as well, whether at AAGL, the group IPPS, SGS, all these acronyms that sound like iCharts nationally and internationally. We, we have lots of talks. Yeah, no, this is great. I, I told you that I was interested in this, that when I found out that you do this kind of work, because osteopathic medical schools are so focused on uh, preventing pain and treating pain, and we learn about trigger points and pain patterns, um, but trying to do it in a way that's not invasive and that uh, teaches people about how their body works and so it was just so interesting for me to hear that you do this and to see what I consider largely to be an osteopathic principle getting used other places. I just love to see that it's, it's bigger than just in my school. Like it's good to see it out in practice as well. Yeah, it is. It's, it's wonderful. It's, and you're right, having that surgical side of it as well. It really actually, so uh, very recently, so case in points operating, you know, this week, so we had someone where I knew they had at least three different types of pain in there, right? They had pelvic floor myalgia, but they had a cyclic dysmenorrhea, right? Pain with periods. 
And then they also had much more generalized abdominal pain, which seemed to have a functional bowel disorder component also with um, kind of some anxiety stimulating aspects. But because of everything together, we were able to target several. So with pelvic PT, we were able to start working on one aspect. We were able to actually get a better bowel regimen, actually get mental health support. And then also I was able to take the person back and diagnose and treat their endometriosis, which we just newly diagnosed. So you can actually, you get to get the whole ball of wax all at once with all of your support services and not just treat one part of it, which is great. Um, and you're just kind of peeling back all these layers because it's just, it's more complex than just generally one thing. If it's one thing, great. I'll take that all day. That sounds good. But usually, you know, it's, it's like depression in chronic pain. Depression is a risk factor for chronic pain and chronic pain will absolutely make you depressed, right? It's just a circle on itself that builds. And so you have to find ways to break that circle and why they have pain, how you're going to treat them as right. We always talk about holistic care which just goes hand in hand. But when you say it, you really got to mean it because it means that there are multiple body systems that you got to fix. And that's, what's good. Some surgical, some medical, and some that honestly can only be fixed with going outdoors and sunshine and good habits. Yeah. It sounds a lot like the uh, osteopathic approach with mind, body, spirit, taking care of all of it. So it's just great to see um, that it extends outside of that and that it's becoming a standard within medicine. That's right. Good medicine is good medicine, That's right? Exactly right. It's, it absolutely. I even I had uh, in our resident pelvic pain clinic the other day. Uh, one of our residents, well, several are DOs, um, but one of them is a DO. And at the end, she said, "Well, what do you think it is?" It's like I I think that actually she has a malalignment of her spine. I was like, "I think she does too." What do you want to do? And he's like, "Well." I think we should do some manipulation. I was like, that sounds great. I'm not trained in that. You are. Go for it. <laughs> and she did. And it was perfect. Oh, that's, so, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was excellent. I was like, I completely agree. I don't think she's like, I don't think that she has a acutely gynecologic cause. I said, I completely agree. But it's still right. It's within the pelvis. So we, we are going to see what we can do about it. And yeah, she fixed her. She great. Oh, this makes me so excited as a DO student going into OB-GYN. Um, to see it in real practice. So thank you for enlightening us today. And uh, I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and talking with me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been wonderful. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. This episode was hosted and produced by Alana Castro-Gilliard and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.